This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. Welcome to another Who's Who at NASA podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Tom Flatley. Tom Flatley is a computer engineer at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and he is currently branch head of the Science Data Processing Branch. Tom, thanks for being with us today. Tom, uh, my first question, why does NASA require uh, improvements to onboard computing power? What's the need there? Okay, well, a lot of the uh, next generation instruments that are currently being developed are going to produce uh, tremendous data volumes or extremely high data rates as the instruments get uh, faster and faster. And their needs are surpassing the capabilities of current um, flight processing systems. So what we're trying to do is enable an order of magnitude or more um, improvement in onboard processing power so that we can handle the large data volumes and high data speeds that the next generation of missions will require. So that's where SpaceCube enters the picture, right? Correct. So yeah. can you just set the stage and talk about what SpaceCube is? Sure. SpaceCube is a hybrid science data processing uh, platform that we're developing. When I say hybrid, I mean it's composed of a CP, you know, traditional CPU plus field programmable gate array and digital signal processing resources that we um, develop applications to use the benefits of each of those processing technologies to accelerate the execution of science data processing algorithms. And by using the new um, radiation tolerant but not radiation hardened um, processors, hybrid processors, we can uh, get take advantage of the speed that the commercial devices can can achieve. That's an order of magnitude or better higher than the traditional flight processors. And then we just develop strategies to detect and correct when they're upset by radiation in space, and then just basically fix it and keep going with the processing that they're doing. Yeah, can you go into a bit more detail about uh, upset mitigation and, and how? Um, SpaceCube enables that? Okay, sure. Traditional flight processors are by design radiation hardened. That means when the chips are developed, they specifically build them using technologies that are immune to being upset in the space radiation environment. Radiation tolerant devices are designed so that they won't have destructive failures in space but they can have what you can think of as bit flips where a one changes to a zero or zero changes to a one, and which can um, produce incorrect data temporarily, but you can detect that and fix it, or you can continue your processing and the air will wash out and then uh, you know, your correct processing will continue. So what we're doing, so the traditional um, devices that are designed you know, specifically that they cannot be upset, um, the technologies that they have to implement are larger and slower, and they can't perform at the rates that um, you know, the current commercial ground-based processors can. So what we're trying to do is sort of find a middle ground where we can take advantage of the, the ground-type capabilities for high-end processing and make them operate reliably enough in space that we can do science data processing applications. So we're not trying to do you know, man-rated health and safety we're not even trying to do critical spacecraft functions. But for processing science data, um, you know, typically it's okay if you have a bad pixel every once in a while or, you know, if you have to reset and start over again. As long as you're providing, you know, 100 times more capability, you know, it can provide the difference between being able to do your mission and not being able to do your mission. 
um, and just having, you know, having occasional errors every once in a while. And so our strategy has been to use these, these high-end radiation-tolerant devices and then come up with strategies to detect and correct when they're upset so that we can operate nearly as reliably as the radiation-hardened devices in space. And when you say processing um, the scientific data, what, uh, can you go into that too about uh, what specifically uh, the data is that it's processing? Is this image processing? Um, um, it's actually cross-cutting. I can give you a couple of examples. We can support image processing or radar processing or basically any kind of high-end processing needs. Um, one good example would be one of our scientists was proposing a radar instrument to go to Mars. Mm -hmm. And with the current traditional processor, he could process, um, collect and process nine minutes of data per day, and that filled up his onboard recorder, and that was all that his processors could handle in a day. Using something like the Space Cube, we did an uh, R&D project with him where we moved some of his ground processing that required more computing power than you could have on board, but that is capable in the Space Cube. And we moved some of his ground functions on board and just did them on the satellite and sent the images down rather than all the raw data. And that, and the first year we got a six to one uh, data volume reduction migrating the first set of his ground processing. And then the following year, we got 165 to 1 data volume reduction by processing the complete images on board. And so basically, he could run for nine minutes a day using traditional processors, or he could run 24-7 using the space cube and maybe have a bad pixel every once in a while. So that's sort of the, the enabling kind of capability that we're trying to deliver to the science community with the space cube. Yeah, what other exciting capabilities do you see with SpaceCube? Um, the other thing it can do with that added onboard processing power is it can be intelligent. It can actually look at the data and react to events. For example, an earth science instrument that detects a forest fire or a flood could um, you know, adapt its processing to change to a mode like an emergency response mode or send uh, direct broadcast you know, real-time pictures of the fire or flood down to, uh, you know, the people in the field who are um, engaging the fire. And another thing is it can coordinate with other platforms autonomously to adapt to events or have, say, it, it flies over and sees something going on and task another asset in a sensor web kind of sense to change what it was planning to do to focus on this new event the next time it comes around that part of the Earth. And then finally, that kind of processing can enable autonomous robotic operations, such as uh, satellite servicing, where in uh, like a geo-orbit or even uh, lunar or planetary uh, missions, you can have autonomous operations and have enough intelligence there to operate without having a human in the loop all the time. And where is it being used? Where is SpaceCube being used currently? What's being done with it today and what's sort of the state uh, of SpaceCube. Okay. Um, it started out on the Hubble servicing mission. We flew our first technology demonstration in 2009, and that was our SpaceCube version 1. And since then, we've come out with a version 1.5 and a version 2.0 and, and a version we call Mini, which is a miniaturized version of the 2.0. Um, we have an, several experiments on the uh, ISS right now that we're doing in collaboration with the DOD space test program. And we're also developing uh, systems with a bunch of the earth science folks here. 
and with the robotic servicing uh, group to uh, you know do proof of concept work for their next generation systems. So we're just now approaching the technology level and the on-orbit demonstration level where it can start being incorporated into uh, you know real standard missions. Mm -hmm. And what kinds of experiments are being done on uh, the space station? Our first experiment on the space station was just to run on some uh, built-in data and demonstrate how we could detect and correct uh, upsets in space. So that's been running on the station since November of 2009. And we've detected hundreds of upsets, but we've been able to correct all but six of them uh, in real time and not interrupt any operations. And the six times that we did have to reset, we were only down for a couple of minutes while we restarted. So we had a you know, 99.9979 uh, uptime. And that's where we're just trying to demonstrate that using the radiation technology for certain applications, um, it can operate, you know, nearly as reliably as the fully radiation-hardened uh, devices. Our new experiment, which was just installed this past September, is uh, taking images of the Earth with high-definition uh, gigabit Ethernet cameras and also controlling and uh, reading data from a heliophysics instrument called Fire Station that's monitoring uh, terrestrial gamma-ray flashes from lightning storms. And that's our first onboard demonstration of a, uh, you know, actual science data processing. And our new experiment, which we're working on now, will go on the uh, space station in 2016. And there we're going to be coupled with an Earth science sensor that's going to measure methane concentrations in the atmosphere for greenhouse gas research. And also running a... Uh, autonomous rendezvous and docking um, proximity operations experiment for the satellite servicing group. That's great. What is, uh, what's your specific work with, with SpaceCube? Uh, I'm sort of the leader of the SpaceCube team, and we have a, a group of uh, engineers and uh, programmers here that work to develop the individual experiments, and I'm sort of the principal investigator and then our team does all of the uh, development work. Mm -hmm. and can you talk a bit about how the team is constructed and, and, and who you're working with? Uh, we have you know, a number of people in our immediate branch who work on the team, and they're leads of the various efforts in supporting the various missions. And then we also team with the people in the other divisions here, in the engineering directorate at Goddard, in the uh, electrical engineering division, the mechanical and the thermal, and in... Um, you know, as well as within our software division and code uh, 590. So it's really a, an AETD, and, you know, an engineering directorate-wide effort, and we put teams together to support the different um, specific individual projects that we're doing. You also do work with, with CubeSats and SmallSats, right? So uh, can you talk a bit about what those will do for spacecraft and spacecraft missions? Okay, a separate effort in our branch is working on uh, CubeSat technology. And the main thing that we're trying to do there is we, we see uh, for in the future a need for two different classes of CubeSats. The first is the university-class CubeSats, which are being built right now. And the second is a, is a high-reliability CubeSat. Um, and we're working with ourselves and the Applied Physics Lab and several groups in the Department of Defense who want to build CubeSats that can do you know, long-duration, three- to five-year missions, uh, maybe, you know, support the asteroid exploration or go to the moon or go to 
Mars and, and it worked basically rely, as reliably as our regular satellites, but in a you know, sort of miniaturized package. And so we have several efforts ongoing here at Goddard. There's a CubeSat, SmallSat technology working group, and a uh, Tiger team, you know, trying to come up with the, the concept and the architecture for this high-reliability uh, CubeSat bus. And what we want to do is, for certain applications and certain proof-of-concept things, the university class systems are fine. But to really enable some science in this uh, decreasing budget environment, a lot of our scientists now are looking to using smaller systems, and we're trying to make those systems more capable so that they can do higher-end functions or meet the reliability of um, you know, our larger spacecraft, because typical university CubeSats, uh, you know, they're getting better, but historically they have about a 50-50 chance of uh, even you know, working in orbit at all. Right. So what are the technical challenges to make them work as reliably as regular satellites? you know, the part selection and the design process. And we're basically, you know, in sort of a skunkworks environment, implementing the same kind of design techniques and strategies that we do for our larger systems, but just without some of the overhead of, uh, you know, the whole full formal process that we do on the larger satellites. So, you know, of course, the, the high reliability systems will cost a little bit more than the university class systems, but they'll also, you know, function a lot better. And we're trying to find a sort of sweet spot in the middle there between keeping it simple but having it be reliable um, that we think can really fill a niche with the uh, NASA and the DOD customers. And we're actually collaborating, as I mentioned, with uh, people in uh, DOD and at the Applied Physics Lab because they have a common interest in this and to try to develop all the components that we need to uh, make sort of a modular scalable, high-reliability CubeSat and SmallSat bus. Yeah, what do you think is the most exciting um, opportunity with, with technology like the CubeSats and SmallSats? Uh, well, they're getting better and better, and you can really do a lot with them, uh, even things that it took a large satellite to do years ago. So with a, and, and CubeSats are getting bigger, you know, they started out as 1U 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter uh, spacecraft, and then there's 3U, and now there's 6U, and people are working on 12U. When you get up to that size, you can really do a lot in a small space, and, and some of the instruments are getting smaller, and the technology across the board is advancing to the point where even a 3U or a 6U uh, CubeSat now can do, you know, be as capable or even more capable than, you know, larger missions were 10 or 15 years ago. So I think it's really going to be an enabling thing for both, um, you know, um, doing continuing to do science in a restricted budget environment and enabling things like a quick turnaround to observe, uh, you know, short-term phenomena or setting up fleets of things to do to get better spatial resolution on measurement. So I think it's really going to open up a whole new uh, field in, to support the uh, science community. Well, Tom Flatley, thanks for taking the time to talk with us here at the uh, Who's Who at NASA podcast.